0: This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise.
1: Bright, but not that bright, Sherlock. Roll the dice and play a little Monopoly. What box would Sir Lawrence land on in
2: Erie, Pennsylvania? Jesus Christ. He's buying Anacott Steel.
1: Okay. When the market opens tomorrow, I want you to buy 1,500 July 50 calls. 1,500. Start buying 1,000 share blocks and take it up to $50. When it reaches 50, give out a little taste to your friends. Then, call the Wall Street Chronicle, extension 1605. You tell the man Blue Horseshoe loves Anacott Steel. You got that?
2: The Wall Street Chronicle?
1: Alright, congratulations, buddy. You scored. Talk at ya. Alright. Start buying Anacott steel across the board. Use the offshore accounts and keep it quiet.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimov, and I'm here with my co-host, famed actor, Kurt Wolf. (laughs) It's
1: good to be with you. Chris, I guess I could say the same of you, huh?
2: I mean, we still haven't been picked up. Although I know George Wilson, you're out there listening, thinks we should have a few movie m- movie auditions in our future. But it has been a while, Kurt, since we've leaned into the playing pop culture on the podcast here.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. I'm guessing that some of our listeners will know what movie that little scene was from. I think I maybe so. Anacott Steele gave it away.
2: Right? That's right. Um, this. This is one of the movies we avoided talking about on our prior episode because everyone knows it so well. That of 1980s fame, Wall Street, starring a young Charlie Sheen and uh, Michael Douglas. Maybe at the peak of his career, we might might say. Definitely a leading role there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think he won an Academy Award for that performance, right? So I, I think peak of his career is, is yeah, fair. Yeah, Gre- greed Greed yeah.
2: is, in fact, good, at least for him.
1: Is fair. Yeah, of course. The scene that we were reenacting... Is talking about one of the trades that Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, and Bud Fox, played by Charlie Sheen, put on that ultimately landed them in some trouble with the SEC and the Department of Justice, and saw them both do some jail time for mm-hmm. insider trading.
2: Spoiler alert: <laughs> 40 years on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spoiler
1: alert is right. But what we wanted to do today is talk a little bit about insider trading, and you know, for a couple of reasons. One. It's just been a little while since we've really focused on this but it is sort of a perennial topic of interest for listeners certainly for regulators we have talked about it before if we go way way back to episode four Chris, we actually did a deep dive on Insider Trading. That was just in time for Valentine's Day in 2020. <laughs> <laughs>
2: One full pandemic ago, I believe exactly. we could
1: say. It's come up on a few other episodes, of course. On episode 38, we sat down and talked with professors Alan Jagalinzer and Dan Taylor, who at the time were talking about... Rule 10 b 51 and its implications for insider trading enforcement. More on that later. And of course, you already mentioned George Wilson. We've talked about insider trading and 10b-5-1 with him a couple of times, of course.
2: So we're going to consider this, this episode an update on some of our previous stuff and maybe a deeper dive into our deep dive series on insider trading. So let's get right into it.
1: You know, before we actually get into it, Chris, I do think it's worth noting just how much insider trading continues to come up sort of in popular media in news reporting, right? So just a couple of days ago, I saw a Fortune magazine article with the title, debt ceiling deal wildly profitable for mystery trader, raising suspicions of insider trading, right? And the Mm -hmm. first graph of that article reads, the US government's move to greenlight a 300 mile natural gas pipeline as part of legislation to stave off a treasury default, shocked just about everyone except for a mystery trader who somehow appears to have seen it coming. So it just, like I said, continues to be popular in the media and elsewhere, but even setting that aside, I think one of the reasons we wanted to talk about insider trading today and what I hope will be sort of a through line for this episode is that we continue to see enforcement agencies taking an expansive view of insider trading and pursuing novel theories and cases that either smack of insider trading or will test the balance of insider trading law as we know it. So time to re-up our insider trading deep dive.
2: That's right. And Kurt, to that point, not only are we ripping these ideas from the headlines the week that we are recording this episode, this is something that's tried and true for the regulatory agencies out there. Obviously, you know, our our podcast focuses a lot on the SEC. Uh, The SEC's standalone cases related to insider trading in 2018 clocked in about 10%. 6% in 2019, 8% in 20, 6% in 21, and then 9% in 22. So we're hovering around that 10% of their their focus is on insider trading-related activity. And just to quote something from the most recent annual enforcement report for the year ended September 30, 22, quote, "...abusive trading practices such as insider trading, market manipulation, and cherry-picking corrode trust in our markets, undermine market integrity, and victimize investors." The SEC brought a number of actions in fiscal year 2022 charging insider trading, including cases against senior executives at issuers and service providers. The latter category includes the SEC's action alleging that a former member of Congress traded in the securities of a public company while in possession of non-public information he obtained while working as an outside consultant to that company. The SEC also charged executives with insider trading pursuant to a purported 10 b 51 trading plan while in possession of material non-public information. In July 2022, the SEC charged nine individuals in connection with three separate alleged insider trading schemes that together yielded more than $6.8 million in ill-gotten gains. The defendants in these actions included a former chief information security officer, an investment banker, and a former FBI trainee. All three actions originated from the Analysis and Detection Center of the Division's Market Abuse Unit, using data analytics that detects suspicious trading patterns, and all involved parallel criminal charges filed by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Insider trading charges against Ishan Wahi and his associates, alleging that Wahi obtained material non-public information in his former role as a product manager at a crypto asset trading platform and tipped his associates ahead of multiple announcements regarding crypto asset securities that would be made available for trading on the platform in advance of which his associates traded, end quote. Kurt, that's just a subset of, of how the enforcement report has approached what will kind of lump under a broad umbrella of insider trading. Those fans of, of episode four will know that the legal issues around insider trading from a regulatory or even a legislative perspective maybe aren't on the most solid footing when it comes to pointing to a specific <laughs> rule or a specific line of conduct that can meet that. So, Kurt, I want to give you some time to refresh our audience on just those kind of thorny legal issues.
1: Yeah, you can go ahead and hit snooze, Chris, because this is going to take a couple of minutes. I'll be back I, in
2: 20. Great. Yeah, no, no,
1: it shouldn't be that long. I promise it <laughs> won't be as long as it was on episode four, but I think it is <laughs> worthwhile to take just a couple of minutes for any new listeners, anyone who's not acquainted with sort of this, the state of the law with respect to insider trading, so, to walk through it. So generally speaking, insider trading happens when a person relies on material, non-public information, when he or she makes a decision to buy or sell securities. I think it's helpful to think about insider trading in the classical sense. So someone who works at a company, an insider, learns something important about the company. Maybe it's about the company's financial health, maybe it's about a potential merger, maybe it's about a new product or some research and development that are going on at the company. The insider thinks the information they've learned is likely to impact the price of the company's stock, positively or negatively. That is, they think it's, quote, material, to the company. And despite knowing that the information is not publicly available to the market or investors, the insider goes out and trades in the company's stock anyway. They might make money or they might sell at just the right time to avoid losing money. Or maybe the insider tells their cousin or a golfing buddy and that person goes out and trades on the information. And so it makes sense, right? I think we can all imagine this as insider trading that probably violates some law or rule out there. But here's the thing. While insider trading stories are so prevalent that some of this now seems intuitive, there is, as you alluded, Chris, actually no statutory definition of insider trading. In the US, there is no bill, act, or rule that specifically prohibits insider trading. Rather, insider trading is most frequently prosecuted as a violation of general securities fraud provisions in Title 15 of the U.S. Code, specifically under Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 and the rules that have been enacted thereunder. Exchange Act Section 10B includes a general prohibition on the use of any manipulative or deceptive device, scheme, or course of business in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. Exchange Act Rule 10b-5 thereunder prohibits schemes to defraud any practices that, quote, operate as a fraud or deceit on any persons, end quote. So the Exchange Act and rules together contain pretty broad don't-do-fraud provisions that are not tailored to insider trading specifically. It's nevertheless within that framework that the SEC and sometimes DOJ bring insider trading cases. It's worth noting here that there have for years been calls for a new insider trading act or for the SEC to promulgate clear rules about what is and what is not insider trading. Numerous bills have been passed around the house, but none have actually been signed into law. So over several decades, the elements of insider trading violations have been crafted by judges who have been asked to construe that broad don't do fraud prohibition that we find in the Exchange Act and rules. Reading across a what is now a large body of case law, illegal insider trading involves the following. Buying or selling a security in breach of a fiduciary duty or other relationship of trust or confidence on the basis of material non-public information. We'll probably call that MNPI. I might have already done it, but just for anybody who's keeping score at home. So breaking that down, the elements are purchase or sale of securities while in possession of information that is material and non-public in breach of a duty of confidence and done with knowing or fraudulent intent. Those basic elements play out whether we're talking about a civil case brought by the SEC or a criminal case brought by the DOJ, except the criminal authorities have a slightly higher burden of proof to show that the trading was willful, where the SEC can get by by just showing that it was reckless. To understand how these elements fit together, there are a couple key components we should hit on. One is the concept that the information must be material. Information is generally considered to be material if there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable investor, so not the most sophisticated investor you can think of, but a reasonable investor, mom or pop, would consider the information important in making an investment decision. The second important aspect of this is the non-public part, which has changed a little bit over time. Generally, we can think of non public information as information that hasn't been reported in the press. It's not in a company's SEC filings or otherwise known by the market. It's something that really is only known by a select few people or a group within a company. A third concept to keep in mind, and this idea emerges from case law construing so called tipper tippy liability, is the concept of a personal benefit. And essentially, the courts have found over time that a breach of a duty of confidentiality occurs when an insider will benefit personally, directly or indirectly, from the disclosure of confidential information to a third person. And the way that they'll determine that, the thing that they'll, that they'll look for is a personal benefit flowing from the person who received the tip back to the person who provided the tip. All right, so I'm actually going to stop there. That's sort of like high level the framework. If you want the whole what did you say it was? 20 minute spiel, you can that's go right. back to episode 4. But for today I think that's enough.
2: Yeah, Kurt, anytime you can flex and say they're under uh, when you're talking about <laughs> subsections of rules, like just see the you know in the background there your your law degree just shining a little bit brighter than (laughs) what's expected. And so, I mean, right, insider trading is this generally accepted idea that's very broad in its application. And we want to hone in on some of the more recent regulatory developments around insider trading, as well as later in the episode, get to some of the cases that are crafting insider trading theory as we move forward. I don't want to spend too much time patting ourselves on the back, Kurt, but as you referenced up top, we had an episode featuring Professors Jagalins or Ann Taylor from Cambridge and Wharton, respectively, on episode 38 back in May of 2021, as it related specifically to analysis around the application and execution of what we call 10B51 trading plans. The general construct of a plan under that is that an executive at an aforementioned time, you know, an, an identified insider of a publicly traded company will file internally or, or with the commission a, a plan to sell by stock ahead of time uh, so mm-hmm. that creating an affirmative defense, as an attorney would tell you, to any allegations of insider trading. You know, a classic example is three months before you know I plan on trading I'm going to buy a thousand shares I write that down, I sign off on it, then I execute that trade three months later. Therefore any non-public information that that executive or insider may have gained in that three months is is rendered useless because they had already signed up to to buy or sell those shares. again our episode was dated back in May of 2021 but there have been some significant developments around this space as it relates to pronouncements from the commission in December 2022. So I don't know, Kurt, if a lot of folks at the commission are listening to our discussion from the podcast. I don't want to say that we (laughs) we may have caused uh, some amendments here, maybe just correlated to some of the discussion. And one of the questions that was brought up was around the appropriateness of these kind of cooling off periods, right? So in the example I gave of of that individual insider trading at a three-month period— that would fall within you know a good faith estimate of what a 10b51 trading plan should look like but there were efforts or, or analysis performed by the professors at the time that indicated public company executives were developing these 10b51 plans within days of the trade actually happening and in certain cases even the day before or even the day of the trade being allowed so you can imagine that material non-public information occurring between the plan development and the trade being executed is very limited, Kurt, in terms of a same day or even a day before trade.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely right.
2: And so the amendments that are uh, you know came about in December of last year are focused on. A few different ideas. The first is the use of overlapping trading plans so that you create, you know, the ability to buy and or sell during the same window, effectively being able to choose how those securities may be be transacted in after non-public information may be acquired, kind of making sure those overlapping plans do not exist in a way that could be manipulated. The second will require more comprehensive disclosure about the issuer's policies and procedures related to insider trading, as well as a quarterly disclosure regarding the Use of 10b51 plans and other trading arrangements which was not previously required to disclose those to disclose those trading plans it's kind of finally the overarching idea with the amendments is a development of, of two ideas right the putting the responsibility on the individual executives to be acting in good faith and not as a plan or a scheme to evade the the tenets of Rule ten B five, Kurt. I think that's probably going against that affirmative defense idea. And then secondarily, adopting appropriate cooling off periods for those plans to be in operation. So some of the details there will be fleshed out. You know, as this has become effective, I believe earlier this year, these companies will now be looking at you know standing up these ten B five one plans appropriately to rein in you know potential abuse from insiders. As well as what we we discussed on episode 38, kind of that opportunistic trading. You know, there these plans were cancelable to a degree where that if, if an executive three months out had a plan to buy stock, but the price was considered to be going significantly higher before that purchase, they may make a choice to either enact on that plan or just cancel it the day before they had structured that plan to go into operation. So some of those choices are now being limited by the amendments and, and hopefully will lead to a little bit clearer picture for these plans in operation, as well as you know, a lack of need to, to respond to them from an enforcement perspective. All that is to say, Kurt, I know it hasn't gone that way in recent memory, is the focus on 10 b 51 plans has definitely ramped up since our episode, as well as since these amendments came out in December.
1: Yeah, I think in, in some respects, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, at, at, at bottom, the ten B five one plans are supposed to be what I call set it and forget it plans, right? You you put it in place,
2: you don't touch it. it it's uh, Ron, Ron Papeel's famous uh, rotisserie <laughs> chicken oven, right? <laughs> yes, set it and forget exa- it.
1: Exactly, exactly right. But I think you know the the professors Jagelinzer and Taylor, as you mentioned, found what you know what they think is substantial and compelling evidence that that is not what's happening in a lot of cases, right? That people are. Are you know sort of going around or using these plans to trade profitably or avoid losses. And so the amendments are supposed to, you know, curtail some of that potential misconduct or misuse in in the space. What's interesting is, you know, despite what what those individuals would say is sort of potentially widespread misconduct, and despite the fact that we've actually been hearing about this and talking about it for a while. I mean, I remember like 10 years ago writing mm. client alerts, anticipating that there was going to be an enforcement focus or a new enforcement focus on 10b51 plans there have been precious little enforcement actions to to look through to sort of figure out what are the bounds what are these things even going to look like but there are some signs that there there could be change in the wind so first of all last September and, and you talked about this a little bit earlier when you were quoting from the annual enforcement report but last September the SEC brought an enforcement action alleging that the CEO of Cheetah Mobile and its former president engaged in insider trading by selling the company's securities pursuant to a purported 10B51 trading plan while they were, in fact, in possession of material non-public information. On the heels of that enforcement action, it was reported in in Bloomberg and Reuters and elsewhere that the SEC and DOJ were conducting parallel investigations and, in fact, sending subpoenas out to all kinds of public companies asking questions about their senior executives' use of 10B51 trading plans. This. It sparked certainly interest. I won't say hysteria among a bunch of public companies, but people were suddenly giving this a much closer look. And then, of course, we got the final 10b-51 rule amendments, which you just you know outlined. So there's been sort of a, a, a groundswell. Now I don't know that a ton has happened since. Obviously, mm-hmm. if the SEC was sending out subpoenas last fall. Many of those cases, to the extent that they're discovering any kind of misconduct, they're going to take a little while to wind through. We won't know about them yet. But in March, so just a couple of months ago, there was another case out of the SEC in which the commission charged the executive chairman, of a California-based healthcare treatment company with insider trading for selling more than $20 million of the company's stock while in possession of MNPI related to the company's largest customer. According to the SEC's complaint, the executive established a 10B51 trading plan to sell the stock, but falsely attested at the time he created the plan that he was unaware of any material non-public information concerning the company. So I think that is... You know, sort of precisely the type of case you are describing, Chris, and precisely the type of conduct that I think the amendments to 10b51 are designed to to sort of root out. It will be interesting to see what what comes next in this space. You know, there was a lot of reporting about you know maybe particularly egregious misconduct in this space during the pandemic. There continues to be. You know, a lot of pressure from the Hill to figure out what's going on in this space. You know, there have been letters from Senators Warren, Van Hollen and Baldwin to folks over at the SEC saying, you need to figure this out. You need to ramp up your enforcement because they at least are convinced that there's something going on here. And that's all, of course, in addition to the the sweep that was reported by Bloomberg and Reuters. So things are happening. Certainly, certainly a space to keep watching if you are, you know, in-house compliance or legal and you are listening to this podcast and you haven't already Done something to go look at those plans, or get your arms around sort of the framework for them, or how your executives are using them. This is certainly the time, but I'm guessing if you're listening to us, you've already thought about this stuff.
2: Yeah, if you date back to episode four or 38, right? Maybe you have. To me, Kurt, it, it, I I don't know if it's if it's a sea change really in posture, but you know, from an accounting or in a regulatory perspective, I consider this pretty black and white you've got an avenue by which compliance is expected right in developing these plans and operating them. we now have an amendment that fine-tunes that operation protocol so that you can comply in good faith and, and represent you know appropriate activity as an insider. The fact that we've now had an update and it's been on the SEC's radar, I think there's going to be a lot of attention here in the next year or two. As you referenced, if subpoenas are going out, we'll probably see a lot more of these just because it's that bright line standard. We talked a little bit about how the insider trading umbrella is broad and maybe not specifically defined in the rules. This, to me, is a little niche that's pretty pretty yeah. well-defined at this point. So I think that really is a crutch that the the regulators will lean on to, to support their arguments about bringing cases here. And to your point, if you're acting in good faith and you're trying to comply, the rules are out there and pretty straightforward to get to.
1: Yep, I agree. But while we're waiting to see how this all shakes out, of course, the, uh, the SEC enforcement sh- machine keeps on churning out new cases. And, and there have been some interesting ones already in, in 2023.
2: Yeah, and these fall into kind of what I'd call first or second level insider trading, right? The example, Kurt, you gave in your very long primer about material non-public information is, you know, an insider at company A is trading in company A stock. But that's not Mm -hmm. always how the SEC brings actions. As recently as February, the SEC charged individuals in a supply chain company that was supporting a specific business that had the opportunity to create vaccines through the pandemic with trading on insider information as a downstream participant in supplying chemicals and needs for that vaccine development. They were made aware of this potential deal between the business and the government and the individuals at that company traded based on the information that they had. So again, they're not they don't have material information about the company they work for. They have material information about a company in their supply chain that will have a larger need and then took it upon themselves to trade for their own benefit of about $1.5 million in illegal profit. So as we get further down the rabbit hole here, we'll talk a bit more about these add-on effects of where MNPI may start or end. As I think in that specific case, Kurt, it's pretty clear that because of these individuals' position and trading in companies' B stock in which they had knowledge of through their position in the supply chain, that that, that kind of qualified for those, those mm-hmm. regular discussions about insider trading.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've been was sort of scrolling through the recent insider trading cases as well, and a couple, a couple jumped out at me. Of course, the 10 B5 one that we already talked about. But in addition, you know, these are sort of two themes, I think, here. So I'll I'll highlight two. One is just sort of the classic kind of tipper-tippy insider trading case. So a couple of months ago, the SEC brought a case in which they allege that a that a consultant or an analyst at a, at a private equity firm allegedly tipped a close friend. Who happened to be a day trader and hold your breath, Chris, licensed accountant, allegedly provided material non-public information to that individual that related to the PE firm's intention to acquire a tech company. Mm-hmm. The friend went out and traded profitably. We we kind of know the rest of the story. That that to me is kind of this is just bread and butter for the SEC, yeah. right? Like sort of nothing to see here other than they keep bringing them, they keep finding them. You know, it's sort of this this drum continues beating. The other one that I found interesting, and I think maybe this is more indicative of where we're going, is the SEC like finding, finding new areas or new segments to layer the insider trading law on top of. So there was a case a couple of months ago involving SPACs, which obviously has been a really t- hot topic over the last couple of years. In that case, the SEC alleged that a former trader at a Canadian asset management firm and a former partner at a U.S. broker-dealer were sharing information about as at least seven merger announcements involving SPACs. And, of course, trading profitably, we know the end of the story, right? But so that, for me, is... A, we could tell a version of that story that looks like every insider trading yeah. case, or at least mm-hmm. tip or tippy case we've ever seen. I always think it's interesting when I see the SEC bringing these types of cases in new areas. And I think that's hopefully a good segue to where we're going to go with the rest of our enforcement discussion.
2: Yeah. And I think this is where we get into some of the more, in Kurt's opinion, and maybe mine as well, an extension of, of some of the insider trading accepted practices or accepted legal theories. As always Kurt one of the areas that's a hot button issue in 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 today's market is is crypto or things related to crypto. We talked a little bit about the Wahi yeah. case up front when we were talking about the SEC enforcement report from last year, but just to get into kind of some of the nuts and bolts here. Mr. Wahi is a, a former product manager at a at crypto exchange in which I'd like to think of it similar to the S&P 500 index, right? When a business is added to the S&P index, their stock is going to trade differently than it than before it was listed or, or God forbid, if it's removed from there. Wahi had the ability to understand which cryptocurrency digital assets were going to be listed on this reputable exchange and, and how their trading price may be impacted by that listing. And just to quote a little bit from the the, the case here. Ishan Wahi, a former Coinbase product manager, admitted in court today that he tipped others regarding Coinbase's planned token listings so that they could trade in crypto assets for a profit. Wahi is the first insider to admit guilt in an insider trading case involving the cryptocurrency market. So in his role at Coinbase, he had the ability to see which tokens were going to be listed, called his buddies, told them, hey, the price is going to jump here when they get on this exchange. And that really led to the specifics around the insider trading activity. A couple of the nuances here as well is that the commission in this case, and we've talked about this in the past too, came out and talked about securities being traded. And they listed actually nine of the tokens at issue here as securities to create the argument for insider trading right one of the elements you talked about in in kind of that uh, device or scheme to defraud uh, you know involves the trading of securities so many of the tokens involved here in this space uh, the SEC has acknowledged as as security so Kurt I know that's a really brief rundown of what the the case actually talks about but I'm interested in some of the takeaways that you take from wahi and, and some of the things that you hear in the circles you run in
1: yeah, I mean, first, just to, to sort of update, you mentioned that Ishan Wahi, you know, pled guilty to criminal charges. You know, his his brother was also, his brother Nikhil was also found guilty or or pleaded guilty to criminal charges in connection with this alleged insider trading scheme. They were both sentenced to prison time. Ishan Wahi was also ordered to forfeit various crypto assets that he received in connection with the scheme The brothers also went on just a few weeks ago actually to settle SEC charges that they engaged in insider trading through a scheme to trade ahead of multiple announcements regarding the nine crypto assets that you mentioned, Chris. Both individuals agreed to be permanently enjoined from violating Section 10B of the Securities Exchange Act and Rule 10B 5 thereunder. They were ordered to pay disgorgement of ill-gotten gains plus interest, right? So there were very real consequences for these individuals in connection with these, with these charges alleging that they engaged in some kind of insider trading scheme. What I think is interesting, or a few things that I think are interesting, one is, at least with respect to the Department of Justice they weren't actually charged with securities fraud. They didn't actually plead guilty to securities fraud or, you know, we can call them insider trading charges. They're, they're wire fraud charges, right? That's what they they pleaded guilty to at the end of the day. So while every single headline you see about this is going to characterize it as an insider trading case, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? I don't know that that's really a thing decided, Something else that I think is, is really interested, we've both mentioned the nine tokens that were identified in the SEC's complaint naming these individuals. I think that really captured the industry's eye, because up until then, I mean, everyone in the crypto industry and, and a lot of folks in the defense bar has sort of been clamoring for like any indication as to what tokens the SEC thought might be securities. And this mm-hmm. was one of the first real glimpses. It was like, oh, well, there's a list of nine. Yeah, Pe- people in the industry had, you know, very different reactions to that, both in terms of whether or not they thought any of them, in fact, are securities I think most people in the industry would say they're not, you know, in terms of operations, you know, if you are operating some kind of trading platform or exchange, like what were you going to do with those nine? Right. So even though this was like sort of a short list, it did have ripple effects through the industry I, you know i think the sec has sort of dribbled out other similarly short lists since then and you know folks in in the industry are trying to sort of digest that and figure out what it means and maybe try to like draw some lines and figure out how yeah. the sec is thinking about this because they're still not really giving any any clear guidance I think, though, the, the sort of main takeaway for me, and, and I talked about it up top, we've talked about it since, is just that the SEC continues to kind of take an expansive view and and apparently the Department of Justice in terms of what is insider trading. I mean, here, they they sort of found ways almost to get around it, right? They they, they did this thing. They've convinced the world that this is an insider trading scheme, but haven't really addressed some of the underlying issues about what is a security. We won't talk about that today, mm-hmm. but that's, that's sort of what I think is really interesting about the Wahi case is just kind of watching some of the ripple effects in terms of how it impacts both the industry and maybe how the SEC is thinking about the types of cases it wants to bring.
2: Yeah, and I think the conduct, right, it makes sense on everyone's mind. This individual had access to information about the changing price of these specific tokens and told his friends to trade on that. That conduct itself, right, fits into that general description of insider trading. It's really the nuance of the market that they're operating in about authority and jurisdiction that, that's going to continue to be questions, Kurt, we bring up in our discussion today. Yeah. Yep. Another case we want to talk about that's made a lot of headlines relates to the non-fungible token or NFT marketplace called OpenSea. Nate Chastain was indicted in June on allegations of insider trading, as well as being charged with wire fraud and money laundering. According to the complaints, the the crime, uh, as outlined by the prosecutors, was that OpenSea would create a listing of the most valuable non-fungible tokens NFTs that they would put out on a daily basis. Mr. Chastain actually had access to that list prior to it being made public. So he had the ability to understand similar to what we just talked about in Wahi, you know, the potential changing expectations for the prices of those NFTs and being able to to trade on that ahead of time to to get, you know, some personal gain on those specific non-fungible tokens. It is worth noting that Chastain's filed a motion to dismiss the charges last August, arguing that the government doesn't have enough evidence to support a charge of money laundering and that in no way did he actually misappropriate information Therefore, he couldn't be charged with wire fraud, as well as, you know, Kurt, one of the things you just touched on that insider trading would not apply to NFTs because they are neither securities nor commodities under the relevant SEC and CFTC law. So you can see listeners that we are, you know, kind of peeling back the onion layers of some of the discussions around insider trading that I think are, Kurt, are still live in the market as, as we consider OpenSea and Wahi.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think maybe this one is maybe a better or more obvious example of the point we were making with respect to Wahi about how, Mm -hmm. you know, enforcement agencies are almost going out of their way right now to call things insider trading, or it feels like that, right? So here, you know, there was so much insider trading smoke, I'll say, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. almost any article you read about the OpenSea case describes it as insider trading or describes this individual's conduct as insider trading. There were a couple of references to insider trading in the indictment. The prosecutors who made public statements about the indictment talked about insider trading. But as you mentioned, Chris, Chastain was not charged with insider trading. Yep. But it was just, there was so much smoke that he even felt compelled to respond to it in in his motion to dismiss, as you said, to say, Mm -hmm. there has to be a security or commodity somewhere for there to be insider trading, and I don't see it here, right? At, At the end of the day, I don't really know that that matters with respect to the outcome of this case, right? Again, these are wire fraud charges. These are not securities fraud charges, but it's just another example, I think, of where the the DOJ is maybe stretching the bounds of what we would think of as insider trading to capture new or different conduct or, or new or different markets than maybe where we've seen it before
2: and for those who follow this space closely kurt we'd be remiss if we did not cover the panawat case because i think that really expounds on on what you just talked about in terms of the bounds of of enforcement here and one of my new favorite phrases kurt that i try to say at least once a day to add it to my my lexicon shadow trading Kurt, yeah, can, so, you, can you explain to me what that is? And, <laughs> and Daniel, if we can play some ominous music while he explains it, that'd be great. <laughs> right. So to
1: understand Panawat, we have to talk about shadow trading, because that's what it's, what it's all about. So the background on shadow trading, I'll do it quickly. In a September 2020 academic paper, professors Mihir Mehta, David Reeb, and Wanli Zhao found that corporate insiders had been engaging in widespread and illicit practices that were designed to circumvent insider trading restrictions and avoid SEC scrutiny through a new new kind of insider trading that they dubbed shadow trading. (laughs) Illegal shadow trading, according to the professors, involves using non-public information about an insider's employer to place educated bets, that is to trade, in an economically linked, that's quote, economically linked, end quote, company's stock. So think a competitor. So I know something about my company, I might reason that that information would apply equally to another company that kind of looks like my employer, go out, make a trade. And they would say that that's illegal shadow trading. It's a novel theory that has been largely untested, and still sort of is, except for Panawat.
2: And just to get into the nuts and bolts of the Panawat case, for those who don't know, Mr. Panawat had confidential information about his employer. Again, curt meeting that definition from the academic paper had information about his employer's impending acquisition by a larger company. Right, they were going to get bought up. And on the basis of that information, he went out and did kind of the classic case of what we'd think about, you know, advantageous information. He purchased out of the money, short term stock options in one of his employer's competitors, a similarly sized company in that same industry that would potentially also be ripe for a business combination. Again, not to not to put myself into Mr. Panawat's shoes, but Kurt, you know, thinking about that reason you talked about, if this company is being bought up and there's another company that is potentially of a similar size and, and maybe economic station to be purchased, then you know, on the news of my company being bought, that company may also look like a more attractive target for people to trade in and go to. So that is what happened, and that competitor's stock price did go up by about eight percent, profiting Mr. Panawat about a hundred thousand dollars on. That trade now, as you talked about, Kurt, the SEC is in Panawat alleged that this shadow trading constitutes insider trading, and in that Mr. Panawat had a duty not to trade in his competitor's stock because of the insider trading policy that his employer had about material non-public information obtained throughout his job. So we can talk a little bit more about this case, Kurt. But really, that's that extension. Is that we're not even talking about you know being employed at Company A and learning knowledge about Company B mm-hmm. through that employment you're being employed by company A, and you learn about company B's impact on company A. So you go buy company C, completely unrelated to A and B, but knowing that there may be or hoping that there may be uh, some change in the price based on the activity you do know about.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think the case really points up a couple of really important, really interesting questions, you know, because of that scenario that you just described, Chris. And th- the first is really whether or not Mr. Panawat in fact had material non public information. Again, if we we're dealing with a you know company A, company B, and he, you know, buys stock in company B, I think I think most people would agree he, mm-hmm. he probably has it, right? But because we're talking about company C, there is a question, does he have material non public information about company C? I, I think it's sort of you know, one of the important issues that they're going to have to grapple with in this litigation. This is a litigated matter. You know, Mr. Panawat is is defending himself and pushing back against the SEC's charges. And this is one of the things that they're, that they're talking about is sort of, what are the bounds of material non-public information? How expansively should we think about it? And, you know, I, I think it's an important question. I think it's going to potentially either confirm what people like me think we already know about the insider trading law or potentially change it meaningfully and expand it going forward. So that's the first question is just how should we think about MNPI in this context where you're you're sort of buying stock in in a company C. The second question is whether or not Mr. Panawat had a duty not to trade, right? So if mm-hmm. we think back to the elements. One of the things is there has to be a breach a breach of a duty of confidence or trust, right? So again, if he's trading in company A or B stock, you, you probably have it, right? But here, really difficult to say that there was any duty that Mr. Panawat owed to company C, right? No duty not to trade in company C's stock, right? 30,000 foot level. Mm-hmm. Except, at least in this case, there were, at his employer, policies and procedures that said thou shall not trade on the basis of information you learn on the job, right? Mm -hmm. Written very broadly could capture really any kind of trading and at the end of the day that could be sort of the hook on which the sec hangs its hat i think it probably will i know that this case caused a lot of companies to go back and look at their own policies and procedures to think you know how expansively could one read this what is it that we're really trying to curtail here again I think it's an important question, one that's going to play out during the course of the litigation. As I mentioned, it is ongoing. So Mr. Panawat filed a motion to dismiss. I think it was at the end of last summer. The court did not grant the motion to dismiss. And I think a lot of people were hoping they, that they would or thought that, that the court should. But instead... The court has allowed the the SEC to pursue its case, so they're sort of in the discovery phase right now. We'll probably see motion for summary judgment. Who, who knows how this thing is is going to play out? The court essentially said that they weren't going to kick this out just because it was a novel theory. You know, my reading of the court's opinion is that they were pretty skeptical of the SEC's theory of the case, but
0: mm-hmm. that
1: they weren't going to say just because you know the courts haven't seen one exactly like this before, that's not a reason to say you can't do it. So the case was allowed to, to move forward. It, it's gonna be really interesting to see how this one plays out. This could be one of those rare cases where you actually get a trial, right? We've talked about this before. Yep. Insider trading is one of those areas where you are most likely to get a trial, right? Because it's often individuals, because their livelihoods may be on the line, right? So we've seen some over time. You know, We've seen Raj Rajaratnam and we've seen Gupta and we've seen you know whoever. Maybe this will be one of those. Uh, But, you know, time will tell, and I'm sure you'll get an update from us.
2: I was going to say, Kurt, you'll be in the courtroom reporting live from the back bench. uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. give me a mic. I'll be there. Well, so we've talked a little bit about what we'll call direct MNPI, right? Uh, an individual at an employer gains information about that employer. Secondary, we'll, we'll say, and these are general terms uh, here on the podcast, uh, you know, gaining information in your your duties about a different business. We've talked about shadow trading, which is trading on that information about a different business in a third business. Uh, Kurt, now we're going to go even one further you know, term down the rabbit hole. That's political intelligence, and Ooh. we're going to talk a little bit about one of our tried and true cases that continues to move about the courts, that of Blaschek. We actually did cover this on episode four, Kurt, and I think our discussion was was pretty on point back then about the impact of this case and, and what we'd expect going forward. Now, we did not predict where it would go, right, in terms of its appeals process and and where it stands now, but... Just to give a little bit of background on the case, this individual had access to centers for Medicare and Medicaid pricing information that the, he then provided to another individual who traded in healthcare related stocks based on that changing pricing information. And the discussion around political intelligence or non-public information about government deliberations or decisions is really the crux of if this information is or was or continues to be MNPI as we consider it from an insider trading perspective, as well as if there is any personal benefit being recognized by this inf- individual in sharing that information. Again, you may see you know the same direction in terms of tipping, but here the tipping may not be of, of material non-public information. And at the time in 2022, when the Second Circuit held that decision, this appeared to turn on years of insider trading doctrine, uh, and that Many folks at the time feared that there would be a lot more insider trading cases, knowing that this may not constitute official material, non-public information, but something else and and not to be too too funny here, Kurt, but would relate much more to, say, the government report about the orange crops in trading places here. <laughs> we could talk about some of that government information. So I know there's been an update as it relates to the shock case, and some of us call it Blaschok 2, as the Second Circuit has reversed course at this point. Kurt, talk to us a bit about that update and, and why it's uh, you know impactful in the insider trading space. Yeah, th-
1: this case has had a bunch of twists and turns. It's been it's been interesting to watch. But I think for purposes of our scu- discussion today, we're going to try to just bottom line it in terms of what the impact is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, first you mentioned it. This was sort of caught up under the umbrella of political intelligence, like the Ten B Five One. For years, there had been lots of concern that the SEC or the DOJ were going to start rolling out a bunch of political intelligence style insider trading cases. There have been a couple, Marwood, Deerfield, you know, Blaschik was was the most recent version. Mm-hmm. But really, we haven't seen a wave of these cases come through. I, I don't know that that has anything to do with Blaschik. It just sort of is what it is. But, you know, for anyone that was thinking maybe this was like the tip of the spear, it doesn't look like it so far. You know, the second, the big point, I think, really had to do with the way that the Department of Justice charges insider trading cases or alleged insider trading violations right i mentioned up top typically this is done under title 15 right that's where you find exchange act section 10b rule 10b51 there a rule 10b5 there under but when they were looking at this case the prosecutor said you know what there's an alternate way for us to charge this We'll do 15, but we're also going to bring it under Title 18, which is another way they can ch- they can charge securities fraud. What sort of happened during the litigation was what appeared to be the creation of separate tests for insider trading under Title 15 and Title 18. And the big difference was that based on an early ruling in this case, it looked like to succeed on Title 18 securities fraud charges, the prosecutors wouldn't have to demonstrate that there was a personal benefit. We talked about that earlier too. Which would potentially be a big deal because you wouldn't think that there would be an avenue for the criminal prosecutors to prove insider trading or securities fraud with a lower burden than what you Mm -hmm. have to do in a civil case. And that was sort of what people feared was going to happen. That's right. This, this case bounced around for a while in the courts. I, do, I don't know that we really got an answer to that question, because at the end of the day, it came down to whether or not Mr. Blaschek was in possession of, quote, property That's that right. could be deemed you know, owned or property of the United States. To answer that question, they followed a U.S. Supreme Court case, relatively recent, Kelly versus U.S. Some people will know that as the Bridgegate case, which took a sort of narrow view of what comprises government property. And when the Second Circuit looked at the facts in Blaschik, they said the type of information that was exchanged here just doesn't meet the Kelly test for mm-hmm. what is property. And on that basis, they sort of dispose of the case. It's been sent back down, actually, for uh, lower courts to look at and you know figure out in light of the Second Circuit's guidance and Kelly, how should they think about it? But at the end of the day, I think a couple of big takeaways are, one, Title 18 doesn't look like it's going to be some, you know, new avenue that lots of prosecutors are going to go down to try to find ways to bring insider trading cases or securities fraud cases. And, and you know, sort of on a similar vein, to this just doesn't look like it will, at the end of the day, be a sea change for the mm-hmm. way that we think about criminal insider trading charges. Of course, prosecutors are welcome to bring Title 18 charges in their discretion, and I'm sure that they will in appropriate cases. But this didn't change the game in the way that I think some people suspected it might.
2: And that's kind of what we touched on, you know, back in 2020, talking about this case and I think Kurt, our, our response, and I challenge listeners to go back and, and confirm this for us. You know, we said this is this is an interesting case to follow, but it's probably not going to move the market or move the needle in terms of, of actions yeah. going forward. So, and thank you also, Kurt, for bifurcating our Title eighteen and Title fifteen issues. That's why we have an attorney on the podcast.
1: None no, of this is I don't legal know. advice.
2: That's right. <laughs> Please be sure to listen to our disclaimer at the end of this episode. I think Kurt, right? You know, to kind of summarize here. This is probably a continuation of a lot of what we talked about in episode 4 of this kind of gradual dynamic evolving case law around insider trading that will ebb and flow continuously over time. Now, were Congress to write a a statute or a regulation that codifies what insider trading is and isn't, That ebb and flow will will definitely move in a different direction. But until that time, I think we're going to continue to have updates like this that explore some of the more nuanced issues, not only on technology, if we talk about crypto and NFTs, but also on the legal theories and arguments that are being made about what is inside, what is trading, and when that may run afoul of the rules.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a version of this is we will only update you in one of these cases. Case winds its way up to the Supreme Court. There have been plenty of those and certainly mm-hmm. a number of opinions out of courts of appeal. But sometimes looking at these that, are, that aren't that are quite that advanced is just a really helpful way, I think, to figure out what's going on, where the, the lines might be be moving or, or sort of being redrawn, and, and hope that's what we did today. And as I said at the beginning, if nothing else, I hope the takeaway is that the enforcement agencies, I think, really are continuing to do their job to monitor all corners of the markets and different market segments. But things are moving around a little bit. We're seeing mm-hmm. insider tra- insider trading cases pop up in new areas with slightly new or novel theories. And so it's certainly something to keep an eye on.
2: Well said. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimovCPA. And I'm at Enforce Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as host Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.